Romans 16, closing the book today, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We do give thanks for this word and for this letter, extended in length, in which you have taken us into the depths of all that you are for us and all that you have done in Jesus Christ and in the Spirit. And we ask today that we arrive at the goal of it all, to sing doxology and praise. And so deliver us to this end. We ask that you speak, Lord for your servants are listening. Amen. After 16 long chapters, long chapters in which we have explored the depth of humanity's revolt against God and what it means for us to be implicated as sinners, the heights of the grace of God being revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, being sealed to our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit, being planned by God in eternity past. Now we come to the end, finally. Lengthy arguments about the grace of God. And Paul wraps up with one simple word, a doxology. A doxology is simply ascribing praise to God. And so he wraps up with these words, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. But why? Why exactly does he close with the doxology? It's tempting to think that this was just merely a dull religious convention. After all, after 16 chapters, it may be hard to kind of land the plane. Maybe Paul was just kind of doing this in a pious way, a way that everyone expected him to, and so he needed to say something spiritual. Or is there perhaps something more profound at work in these closing words. Is there perhaps a reason that Paul decides to wrap up with a doxology? And when it's all said and done, Paul ends in a doxology because this is the point of everything that he has been writing in this letter to the Romans. See, if you remember where we were in chapter 1, God's plan for human beings was to honor him and to give thanks to him. That is that they were to receive God's gifts in creation and all of the lavish benefits that God had bestowed on us as his creatures and also the gift of communing with him. That we were to be induced by all of those gifts to love and fear and revere him, to honor him and worship him, walking rightly with him. But all of this gets scratched because we revolted against him. Every one of us rebelled. And that in our first parents, they were commanded one thing, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're told by Paul that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. 
And what happened on that fateful day was not just some dietary error, but rather what took place was that Adam and Eve chose that they wanted to be the ones who would define good and evil, that they would distinguish right from wrong, that they would be the judge, that they would be autonomous and independent, not submissive to God. That this was humanity's turn. This is what we call sin. And so human beings, you and I included, were no longer rightly related to God, no longer honoring him and thanking him but rather embracing our pride, embracing our laziness, embracing our ingratitude, embracing our autonomy. And Paul ends in doxology because what he sees in the work of the grace of God and what's been revealed in Jesus, he sees that that great turn away from God is now being reversed that no longer are humans stuck in that ingratitude. No longer are they stuck in that pride, but they've been freed from this by Jesus and now free to offer thanksgiving and praise to God because of what he has done. But how exactly does God prime us for this? How does he induce us towards this? And this is what Paul reveals for us in these final closing words. And what we see here is that God prepares us for doxology by once again renewing us in the knowledge of his works, what he has done for us on our behalf in Jesus. And that there is this intimate link, an inseparable connection between the praise of the church and the works of God on our behalf. And so while we have walked through it slowly in 16 chapters, Paul here in condensed fashion presses us with the works of God on our behalf, what he has done and where that is to deliver you, to deliver you into the praise of God. And so he reminds us of three things in particular. He reminds us of the power of God. Secondly, he reminds us of the mysterious plan of God. And finally, he reminds us of the goal of God. And that these three things are to induce us, to prime us, to offer praise and thanksgiving to God. And so we'll look at these three things briefly ahead of coming to the Lord's table this morning. First, the power of God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is how he begins his doxology in ascription that God is the one able to strengthen us through the gospel and through the preaching of Jesus, those things just being parallel. And so the gospel, the theme of the entire book of Romans, it is the word that we met in the very first chapter, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It was no doubt a word that was known in the first century. It was a word used by empires. It was a word used by Caesar. It was a word associated with any victory in battle or the birth of a son or the accession of a new emperor. And so a gospel was published and a gospel simply announced good news. It was news concerning the empire. 
And Paul takes this language and his language that was familiar from the Old Testament as well, and he uses it provocatively and powerfully. And he says, there is a gospel. There is imperial news that is good news for all the nations, all the peoples, and it has nothing to do with the one who rules in Rome. It is that about the one who rules at God's right hand over all the nations of the earth. And it is in this gospel, this good news, that God has established Jesus to be the Lord of lords and the King of kings, that he is the ruler of the kings on the earth, and that the nations are, bow, are to bow to him and to serve him. Because in this gospel, in this good news established in Jesus, is that we receive innumerable benefits. Innumerable benefits through his victory over sin and death. That we too are set free from our sins and granted a new status before God. That we're set free from the captivating power of sin. And we're free to then walk out of that bondage. That we are free to a new destiny, a great hope of a world that's liberated from the pollution and the stain of sin. And so Paul says, he reminds us that we've been strengthened according to the gospel. Now it's important to recognize that that word strength in the book of Romans works with the word weakness. And we're reminded of what it means to be weak in Romans 5, 6. It's there that Paul explains that while we were still weak, at the right time, God died, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, when we think of weakness, we tend to think of just a certain incapacity and that we need to spruce that thing up just a little bit and then we'll be okay. But please pay attention that this is not the way the word weakness is being used by Paul. Weakness is juxtaposed in Romans 5 with one thing, with being ungodly. And so it's not just that we are a little weak and need a little help. That we're not just mostly good and just need a little assistance on the side. But rather, what it means to be weak in biblical terms is that we're incapacitated, that we're cut off, that we're completely helpless. And the gospel makes us strong by providing all the ability, all the goods, all the resources that we cannot bring to the table. And yet so many who populate Christian churches are still prone to the error of thinking that the gospel comes along to assist us in our relationship with God. But we've seen here that when we do this, when we walk into this error, we inevitably cut off doxology and praise because we, at that point, bring a claim on God, thinking that we can do something to benefit him, thinking we can do something to compliment him. But what it means to be made strong by the gospel, what it means to be strengthened by Jesus, is that Jesus brings us all out of all of our incapacity. He brings us out of all of our weakness. He brings us out of our ungodliness. He brings us out of our rebellion that we have been handed over to. And so it is through the gospel that we find strength. And we find strength in a complete renunciation of ourselves, turning against our will, 
turning against our accomplishments, turning against anything we bring that puts a claim on God, turning against anything that makes us think that we have something to offer to him. And so we proclaim our weakness and we find strength in one. And this is the message of the gospel, that strength is only found in Jesus. And this, friends, is the ultimate source of doxology and praise. It's when the gospel is truly a free gift, when we recognize that we have nothing, that we are absolutely weak. We bring nothing to complement it. We bring nothing to add to it. We do nothing to supplement it. And this is the benefit that God gives us in Jesus. But the second benefit that we find here that induces doxology is God's plan. As you continue in verse 25 and into verse 26, Paul says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. This is one of those great Pauline run-on sentences where it just begins to pile up phrases, preposition after preposition. But this is the simple point, that in Jesus and in the works of the Spirit, that a mystery has been disclosed. Now, the word mystery in the biblical sense is important to understand because it's not quite the same word that we use today when we think of mystery. You may think of murder, she wrote, or Agatha Christie. Those are dated. Um, or something more recent. <laughs> My daughter watches Murder, She Wrote. I'm sorry. But we have certain connotations for the word mystery. But in the Bible, the mystery is something, a mystery is something that is always true, that was concealed, but has now been revealed. This is the way the Bible uses the word mystery. And so it's not something presently hidden. It was something that was obscure. And friends, this is what the gospel was, that the gospel was present in promise and in ceremony in the Old Testament. We learn about the ceremonies and rites of Israel, the temple and all the celebrations, that these were shadows, and they were shadows of a substance. They were being cast by something into history. And that substance is none other than Jesus that he was the substance of all of those shadows and all of those promises. And this was the mystery. But then it's brought fully into the light of the day and the shadows run away because the substance is there, that Jesus is now manifest. And so no longer in mysterious shadow, but in the full light of day, the secret has been made known and it is an open secret now. It's been made known to all the nations. This is the command of the eternal God. This was his plan. And what Paul invites us into, especially in Romans 9 through 11, is all the grandeur of that plan, to know it, to cherish it. And friends, what he invites us into, to become students of, it is understanding and knowing that plan. That's right, he wants you to be a theologian. He wants you to embrace it. He wants that great covenant story 
that runs from the first pages of the Bible to the final pages of it. He wants that great covenant history, that story to be yours, for you to digest it, to eat it, to devour it, and to say this is God's truth for me. This is what we're being invited into, this great plan of God, to be overwhelmed by it, to see the great rebellion that was overcome, the way he overcame it in Jesus by going down into death and crushing sin and evil, and the way he will overcome it and bringing new creation when he returns. This benefit too, this great covenant story in history, this story of the kingdom of God, what God is doing for you, this brings about praise. And so take it up. If you find it foreign, if you find it confusing, take that as invitation. Go and study. Find those who can help lead you in the way. Because in knowing all the nooks and the crannies, and knowing all of the outworking of Scripture and the great plan of God, this leads you to one place. It is to adore the eternal and wise God who has worked all these things out in Jesus. This leads us to praise. And finally, we also have God's goal. In verse 26, Paul continues, and it says this, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And is this obedience of faith that is the culminating goal of God? We've seen this phrase once before. It's in chapter 1 in verse 5. It's helpful to turn there and look at it once again because Paul begins and he ends the book with this phrase. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This phrase, obedience of faith, is a tricky one to translate. And it could refer to two potential things. It could refer to the obedience that follows from faith. We know that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's a fine translation, but I don't think it's preferable. Or it could be the obedience that is faith. And I believe this second translation is the one that we want to take. That when Paul is speaking about the obedience of faith, what he is talking about is believing in Jesus. That Jesus is the world's true Lord. That he's been installed at God's right hand, ruling over the nations. That he conquered sin and death. Because to get in line with the truth of the gospel is to say that that is the reality of the world in which we live. That Jesus rules the world. That Jesus is the king. That Jesus is the Lord. That Jesus is the world's rightful ruler. That he's not an option. He's not just a spiritual experience. That he is a historical reality. That he came as a man in the flesh that he died at death on the cross for you and for me, that he was raised and that he is at God's right hand and ascended, he rules over the nations and that he will return. The obedience of faith is to say that this is true, that this is our world, 
that this is God's plan, eternal plan, that has been disclosed to us. And so we affirm it. And that he is bringing about the obedience of faith amongst all the nations. And so all the tribes and all the tongues, a diverse family God is building. All the cultures and all the classes, God is pulling people, men and women, children and the aged, every generation, every nation, God is building his family from this diverse community. And that is that human beings would be restored to that great original purpose, to live in harmony with God, walking with him, in communion with him, offering gratitude and thanks with their great vocation that was given to us by God to subdue and to conquer the earth. And that we'd be freed to walk with him rightly, that with one voice, all of God's children offering thanksgiving and praise, that this too, the immense plan of the gospel to bring healing to human beings, to all the nations, that this too induces our praise. Because when it is all said and done, of everything that you could say about the book of Romans, if you remember anything, remember this, it's about doxology. It's doxology induced by the works of God revealed in Jesus. And what we find here is God's power, a statement of what God has done for us in Jesus to make us right with himself without any contribution that we bring, free grace. It's a statement of God's plan, this intricate plan worked out through the history of Israel in God becoming a man, a Jew, going down into death and yet conquering over death and promising to renew all the ends of the earth in the power of resurrection. This is God's plan, the plan of the eternal God and God's goal to unite men and women from all the nations in one family, giving them one common standing through Jesus. This is the plan of the eternal and only wise God. And he discloses it all to you. He's entrusted it to you. He's allowed you to share in his mind and to know his thoughts and to know his plans for the world. And he does it not so that you be smart. He does it not so that you be wise. He does it so that we learn to offer thanksgiving and honor and praise, that we know how to return to him what is rightfully his, and that is the thanksgiving of our hearts. And so, friends, allow this great book of Romans, in all of its preaching and all of its depths, to have this simple outcome, to offer thanks to God. Let's pray. And Almighty God, we do confess that you are the only wise one. And we confess our desire that glory be to you only forever and ever. You have made us your own. You've chosen us for yourself. You have ransomed us. You have redeemed us in your son, Jesus. You have freed us in the power of your spirit. 
and you draw us to that coming day when all the wrongs of our world will be righted, the sad things made untrue, death and decay will be no more. And you even tell us that creation eagerly awaits that moment. And so God, in light of all of these great benefits, everything that you've done for us, turn us from our selfish ways to return to you, to offer thanksgiving and honor and praise. Help us in all of our weaknesses. And may we be strong according to the gospel. Let this gospel be our strength, our one refuge, our one pillar of support. May everything that we have come through it. And God, we are reminded this morning of all the needs of our world. And we ask that you hear us as we bring our burdens and concerns to you. You've commanded us to pray. And we confess that we know not how to pray as we ought. And so help us as we come by the work of your spirit. And so let's make the following petitions in silence. Let's ask God to fill the world with the knowledge of his glory, especially praying for our mission partner, Nerea Mata, director of Gethsemane Garden Christian Center in Kenya. Let's ask God to transform the lives of over 750 orphans and students at the school, also praying for the faculty and staff as they minister the gospel tirelessly to these children. Let's pray for our local ministry partner, Aldo Mondin, working with RUF at the University of South Florida. Let's give thanks for a very fruitful first semester of ministry on the campus and ask God to give Aldo and Abby rest during the winter holidays. Let's pray for all in authority, especially for our mayor, Lenny Curry, that he will promote justice, that he will restrain evil, that he will uphold integrity and truth in our city. Let's pray for Jonathan Waddell while away on deployment with the Navy. Ask God to be a refuge for Jonathan while away and to support and comfort Abigail and Daniel in his absence. Let's pray for all who grieve and who suffer in body and mind within our congregation. Let's remember Barb Day, Louis Fosnick, Sue Forsyth, Elizabeth Garnett, 
Gar Gorganius, Hector and Viona Harima, Wayne Noble, Sandy Reynolds, and Jules Smith. And let's pray, pray for the children and youth of Christ Church, asking God to bless them with the knowledge of his love for them in Jesus Christ. And let's close saying the prayer our Savior has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.